If you're using the Pew Bible to follow along, and we always encourage you to have the Bible open as we read it together, as we study it, you'll find Romans 5 still, as it's been for many weeks, on page 1119 of the Pew Bible. Hasn't moved, hasn't changed. We're in chapter 5. We are finishing out this first portion of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. There is very clear break after verse 11 before he gets into a discussion of our union with Christ, beginning in verse 12. As we've noted in previous studies, the Apostle Paul has established that all of mankind is guilty before God and all are deserving of his wrath. That is an inescapable conclusion that he arrives at by the time he gets to the mid part of uh, Romans chapter 3. From that point on, from Romans 3, verse 20, moving on to and through chapter 4, he defends and proves that justification or our having a right standing before God is, in fact, by faith alone, in Jesus alone, and not by our own works of righteousness. And so now, beginning in chapter 5, he wants to examine and leads us in examining the many benefits that are ours, those of us who have been justified by faith. That's where we are in our study in the argument of the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Romans. In these verses, that is the verses we'll be looking at this morning and the ones even previous, we have seen what is actually ours in Jesus Christ those present possessions that belong to every true believer, that we may be assured of our present right standing before Almighty God. And how important that is for each one of us to know that we belong to Christ, that we indeed possess these benefits, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have access now to God, to his presence, to his very throne, to God himself in prayer, that we may come before him, and that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, our own glorification, our seeing God as he is in all of his splendor and glory. These are the things, among many others, that we've discussed already that are our benefits because of being justified by faith. Paul will continue to discuss the benefits of our justification, and the assurance that we can have in chapters 5 through 8, the central section of the book of Romans, and probably the most familiar to all of us. This morning, the Apostle Paul emphasizes more of what being justified now means for us with respect to the future and the final day where Christ will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. That's what we confess every time one of the elders asks you on a Sunday evening when we use either the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, Christian, what do you believe? And among those things that we confess, we believe that he will come. He will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. And so let's look to the future with respect to our current possession of all of these gifts. And I ask you to stand as we read the entire section, 1 through 11, for full context as we review these things and focus on verses 9 through 11 this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, this is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All flesh is indeed like the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray now that you would be present with us by your Spirit, your Spirit being our teacher, instructing us in the things of Christ, speaking of him, that our hearts would be comforted and strengthened in those things, to the end that we would glory only in you. May our boast only and always be in the God who has redeemed us through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When commentators come to a passage like this one in Romans 5, verses 9 through 11, inevitably, many of them, as I've studied this week, will often bring up an interesting point regarding the way the Bible speaks of our salvation or of our being saved. The Bible, they say, will speak of our being saved in the past, in the present, and in the future. As the helpful notes in the Geneva Study Bible say in another passage, salvation is spoken of as a past event, a present process, and a future reality. Now we see this in many places as we read through our Bibles. For instance, with respect to salvation being in a past event, Ephesians, for instance, 2.8 says, For by grace you have already been saved through faith. Romans 8, we'll get to it soon enough. Verse 24, For in this hope you were saved. Paul speaks of it in a present tense or as a present process. That is God's ongoing saving work. When in 2 Corinthians 2.15 he writes, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being, present tense, saved, and among those who are perishing. God has saved in the past in Christ at the cross. He has determined that in the distant past, as we saw last week in the eternal counsels of the Father to, and the Son and the Spirit to save a people. And so there is a past sense, a present sense, 
And here in Romans chapter 5, it is clear that Paul takes us to a future understanding or the future reality of our being saved as we see it here in verses 9 and 10 especially. Now, of course, none of this means that we cannot have assurance right now. When we talk about our being saved in the future, that, that is not at all to undermine what Paul has actually been doing in these verses, to undermine our assurance that we are now justified in Jesus Christ. We are as fully saved now as we will ever be. But Paul takes it to the future for their ongoing encouragement that they might understand that because of what God has done for us now in our being justified, reconciled to God now, that means that on the future day of judgment, that great final day, we can have confidence that we will and shall be saved. What we possess now in Christ can never be taken away. There's nothing that needs to be added on that day of judgment that God will say, I did all of this, but now you add a little bit of something so I can let you into heaven. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. This emphasis by the Apostle Paul in his writings is again to remind the believer that God who saves sinners saves them to the uttermost, to the end. That great passage in Philippians chapter 1 is so helpful in this regard and speaks of it in this sense. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he began, he will complete on that great day. Now, all that we're studying here is rooted in what the Apostle Paul has told us about the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts. A love we noted, of course, and studied last week that finds its focus on Christ at the cross, as it says in verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The benefits of that justification accomplished by Christ on the cross, as we noted previously, continue to be his focus this morning. So I've broken it down simply into the three verses and three points as we look at this passage briefly this morning. You'll notice in verse 9, the first point is this, that in Christ we are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul again grounds what he says about the future and what is our present possession, since we have already now been justified by his blood. This was the emphasis, you look back at verse one, since we have been justified by faith, what is it that we now possess? But he's arguing from the greatest to the lesser, isn't he? When he uses this phrase, which is repeated each time, much more, much more, much more, he's arguing from that which is greater to the lesser. If God has already accomplished for us in Christ our justification, our having a right standing now as we sit here this morning before God, how much more will it be true that we will be saved from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. That's his point. 
How much more? How much more will the lesser thing, which is being saved from God's wrath, how much more will that be true if the greater thing are having now a right standing because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross? How much more will that be true? Now, we need to understand what Paul means by the wrath of God, and in Romans, we're told what he means. There's a few senses that we've talked about this, and the one is in Romans chapter 1. And it says the wrath of God is constantly in this present time being poured out against mankind for all their ungodliness and unrighteousness. That wrath and that judgment of God that's being poured out is not what Paul has in mind in these verses. He's taking us to a future day of judgment. It does not diminish what he says, of course, in Romans 1, that God's wrath is being poured out now in our own nation and around the world for those who continue to live in their ungodliness and unrighteousness. His judgments are a present reality, but they are all a foreshadowing of a greater day, Paul says, a singular day of judgment. Revelation 19 speaks of it this way in quite graphic and stunning terms as it pictures our Lord Jesus Christ coming with the armies of heaven. His eyes, that is, of our Savior who now comes in judgment, it says, are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That language from Revelation, apocalyptic language, needing to be properly, of course, understood and properly interpreted, nonetheless paints a very graphic picture of the day of God's wrath and judgment upon this world. And that's what Paul has in mind. We are now, because of justification by his blood, we are now justified, and that means we all the more will be saved by him from that wrath that Jesus is spoken of here, bringing in Revelation chapter 19. Of course, we're saved by that wrath because he himself has already borne that wrath upon the tree. He suffered the full measure of God's wrath against us if we believe and trust in him. There was the great exchange, was there not, on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, he taking our punishment in becoming sin for us, and we receiving his righteousness, by which we are now clothed in his presence. That's what Paul means. He means that that wrath that will be uh, carried out by the Lord of glory, by the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, that wrath is what we are saved from and will be saved from on that day. And it's because, he says, we are justified now in the present. We shall be saved, be safe in him from the wrath of God. 
That's the first point that we need to note. Secondly, note in verse 10, Paul writes, if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And, and that language we looked at last week, it's the fourth of four different descriptions of mankind in their sin and for whom Christ died. They were sinners, they were weak, they were ungodly, and they were enemies. That is what we were before God saved us. But his love is demonstrated that he died for such people. Now to be saved by his life is a very interesting phrase that we see here. Paul introduces here, of course, the idea of reconciliation in verse 10. And that is uh, God simply bringing peace. The echo of verse 1 is seen here, isn't it? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. There's a reconciling work that God has accomplished for us in Christ. He's brought peace between those who were initially enemies. He established peace through the cross. That's what Paul means when he says it. And again, it's a present possession. We were reconciled. Now that we are reconciled, make no mistake, right now we are reconciled and we have peace with God. The argument again seems to be from the greater to the lesser. Having accomplished the greater, reconciling enemies through the cross of Christ, we shall, he says, go on to be saved by his life. Saved by his life. Now, commentators, again, at this point, typically enter in discussion, and we won't enter into it at great depth or length, but of the various obediences of Christ, there are two. There's the active obedience and the passive obedience. You've heard this language, perhaps, as you think about the obedience of Christ to what the Father called him to do. The, the passive obedience is his willingness to give himself up, to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. He is passive. He does not open his mouth when the shearers come. They come to arrest him. He simply gives himself up. That is his passive obedience, which finds its full expression on the cross, where he is hung before the Father and receives the wrath that we deserve. That's his passive obedience. But equally important is his active obedience, the fact that he came to do the Father's will. Of me it is written in the scroll, he quotes. Of me it is written in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O oh my God. And so the doing of the will of God, the obedience to all of his commands, the perfect obedience that the Lord uh, has accomplished is the grounds of our justification and our righteousness. His righteousness, his perfect obedience, is transferred to our account. That's what these terms mean, the active and passive obedience of Christ. But what is interesting is that not, that is not what Paul has in mind here. He's not thinking about by his life or his righteous works, his active obedience, we shall be saved on that day. What he has in mind is his present possession of immortal, everlasting, and indestructible life that he has within himself. That life, Paul says, is the means by which we shall be saved on that great day. It is his resurrection life. That's why the resurrection is so important. That's why we can't deny the resurrection when we think about Jesus dying on the cross. We, we can't say that he was never raised because it's the raising of Jesus from the grave 
that leads to this immortal, everlasting, indestructible life that he possesses in himself. And as we said, even this morning, and God's providence is wonderful. Look at the questions again with respect to how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? It benefits us in many ways, but one of the ways it benefits us is that life that he possesses is now ours. He is the first to be raised from the dead, the first fruits of all of those who shall be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Our resurrection and glorification, our resurrection bodies are tied to Jesus his life presently, his life that he possesses, immortal, everlasting, indestructible, is the grounds on which Paul says we shall be saved by his life. John puts it this way, and I think this is most helpful as we try to understand what this idea of being saved by his life means. In 1 John chapter 2, in his first letter, he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have now an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. It is Jesus in that indestructible life now seated before his Father, who in that life is our advocate before the Father, so that when we sin now, he advocates for us before the Father. His blood is seen again, if you will, before the Father. When we come to the table and remember the sufferings and the death of our Savior, we remember as well his resurrection and immortal, everlasting, indestructible life. And we are saved by that life and we will be saved by that life on that great day because he has gone to heaven with that life and that life is ours and that life will yield our own resurrection and our own glorified bodies bringing, if you will, the full completion of the work of God's saving of sinners like you and like me. And so we will be saved by his life. And then thirdly, we are saved to and to the end that we may rejoice in God. It is interesting as you read this verse, uh, Sinclair Ferguson in a sermon he preached refers to this mentioning of rejoicing in verse 10 as a triple rejoicing now in verses one through 11. Look back to verse 2, you can see the first time he mentions that we rejoice. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice, we express joy in knowing that we will see God, that we will be glorified and made like Christ. And then in verse 3, you have the second of these three. Not only that, but we rejoice also in our sufferings. And as we studied that, we saw how important it is to rejoice in the sufferings that God has in his providence and wisdom brought into our lives because they yield fruit for us. 
This is the third, the triple rejoicing. We rejoice, he says. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's interesting, isn't it, as you follow Paul's logic in these three verses. He's moved from the present realities to the future in the first two verses. And now he moves in light of those future promises that we will be saved from the wrath. We will be saved by his life. He now moves back into the present and he says there's something we can, can do and in fact should do now. Because of that which God has accomplished, we should rejoice in God. If these things are true and they are, how much more now shall we who have been reconciled rejoice in God? This is what we have been saved for, to rejoice in God. It's the very first question that our children learn when they begin to hear and study and memorize the shorter catechism. One of many that we trust they have committed to their memory. It speaks of the purpose of our lives. What is the chief end of man? And put it personally, what is your chief end, believer? What is it? Man's chief end, in fact, it's the chief end of all men, but man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That word rejoice, we've already noted before, can mean boast and glory to glory in God, to boast in God. That's where the logic of the gospel leads. It leads to rejoicing in God. As one considers the gospel and the impact of the gospel upon their own lives, there is a leading to rejoicing in God. And notice he says in God, not in what God has done. The two are connected, of course, but a rejoicing that takes place in God and who he is. In Pastor Fisher's study of 1 Timothy, which no doubt he'll resume when he returns, in the very beginning of that letter, you remember Paul's words. He does this several times, actually. Though formerly he says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, there he is. He's thinking about all that he's writing about in Romans 5. He's thinking about God's mercy to him as a sinner, as a, an enemy of God, as ungodly and as weak. He's thinking about it. And what does he do in the very next verse to the king of, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, it's the logic of the gospel that always leads to our rejoicing in God. And so as we prepare to come to the table, I just have one application that, of course, it's hard to ignore. It's the one that Paul makes here in verse 11. Rejoice in God, believer. Rejoice in God. It's hard not to make this the first application and only 
because it is, again, the logic of what Paul is saying here. It makes sense that he would end this way, that our whole lives are to be given to rejoicing in who God is. Consider his attributes, his character, his nature, and rejoice in everything that you read and everything that you understand. Consider, of course, as Paul would have us, all the benefits of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. What are the present realities of our lives? And rejoice. There is one consistent mark of true believers in the New Testament. It is that they are a people who rejoice. They are filled with joy, Paul says elsewhere, even to overflowing, as they consider the work of God, the mercy of God, his attributes, his character. The words of one of the great modern hymns we sing regularly, Yet Not I But Through Christ in Me, I think captures this truth very well in so many ways that our theologically uh, rich and treasured hymns do in the past. It's that first line that I really love. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. That second line speaks so powerfully to me. There is no more for heaven now to give. Having given all, Paul says, we have now all that we need in Christ. It's one of his great themes in this section of Romans 5 through 8. And so certainly to unbelievers, those who are outside of Christ, who have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, I would say to you even these words from this great hymn, there is no more for heaven now to give. There is nothing else that will reconcile you to a holy God than the one who has come to become sin for all of those who would believe on him, that they might be saved from the wrath to come and saved by his present indestructible life. And so for unbelievers, I would simply call you to faith in Christ, to come and to believe in him, to believe what the Bible says about you as we who have trusted Christ, have come to understand what the Bible says about us and to believe what the Bible says about Christ, that he is the only substitute, the only one who can take our place in this great exchange of wrath for unrighteousness that has to be through Christ and Christ alone. But to believers, to all of you who are here this morning, who have trusted in him, Hear these words that Paul says, we also now rejoice. We rejoice in God, who he is, his attributes, character, etc. Who he is, is expressed in what he has done. And it's that love that we talked about last week that Paul has in mind. That's the connection in these verses. So rejoice, believer in God. As we close this morning, I have a confession to make which I often do at this time. Uh, I think, and I, I did check this out, I think this is the first time in all of my years of pastoral ministry, I was ordained in 1990, that I have ever used, you're not gonna know this, but I've ever used the same sermon title from another passage that I was preaching on another text. And as I look back, because I had, when I sent it to, to Mr. Wilson, I said, boy, that, that sermon title sounds very familiar to me. 
And so I looked back and it was exactly, exactly two years ago on March 6, 2022, that I began a series on John 17 by preaching on a parallel text in Hebrews 7.25, which reads this way, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I had this nagging suspicion. I went back and I said, I've chosen this sermon to have it sounds familiar. So I searched and I found that that was the title from the passage itself that I chose back on March 6, 2022. At the end of that sermon, and I did this without any pre-understanding or conceiving of anything, not remembering any of that, I made reference to a hymn that will end this service with these words, because we're going to end the service the same way this time, pick the same hymn for some reason, which includes the fact that we celebrated also the Lord's Supper on that first Sunday in March of 2022. He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. He ever lives above. That's what Paul means when he says, saved by his life. Our Jesus possesses an indestructible life, and by that life we shall be saved. Having been justified and reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, how much more now on that great day shall we be saved from the wrath to come and saved by his life? Therefore, believer, rejoice boast and glory in him for in him you are saved to the uttermost you and all who trust in him all who have received the reconciliation and who have been justified by his blood let us pray father to me it's wonderful to think that two years ago as we talked about these things the same ideas are now present before us again, same hymns, same celebration of your table. For this is how you do things. This is what you do as you bring to our remembrance these truths that we so easily and so often forget. Help us to know that not only are we saved now, but we are saved to the uttermost and to the end because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And may our glory, our only boast, be in knowing you, our only boast be in the Lord. We pray that you would grant this, even as we come now to this table. Bless it to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.